move forward from this pandemic. Um, so yeah, with the pandemic, we've had plenty of time to be on Facebook and Twitter, and it doesn't take long to figure out that our society right now is marked by uh, division, the need to be right, um, the idea that unity and humility aren't really values that are esteemed in our culture currently. Uh, Facebook and Twitter and everything else feeds into that even more so. Um, and unfortunately, uh, if you've ever your, stuck your toe into the uh, the dirty pool that is Christian Twitter, you realize that it's uh, hasn't hasn't left the church immune to the same problem. Um, we see in the church, especially, this kind of need to. Uh, raise our own platforms to uh, basically everything is the opposite of what we would consider uh, humble and very rarely does it uh, build unity as well. Um, and today we're going to look at Philippians 2, 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, it is a letter from Paul to the Philippians. It's kind of always weird to do like a drop-in sermon into the middle of a text. A little background on Philippians, real short version of it. Obviously the Apostle Paul is the one that wrote this letter. Uh, he wrote it from prison to a group of Christians in Philippi that uh, were facing persecution and was giving them instructions on how to see their faith continue to grow uh, with this idea of looking forward to the kind of final day and, and keeping their, their eyes set on what the end needs to look like in the midst of their circumstances here. So we're going to kind of parachute into the middle of this book, uh, take a look at what Paul has to say about humility and unity. Uh, the title of my sermon today is Unity and Humility Through Christ's Example. Uh, so let's uh, go to the text. I'm going to read through the text, and then I'll pray. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not on, look not only to his own interests, but to also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for the fact that though I'm meeting people this morning for the first time, they're my brothers and sisters because of you. Thank you that we can look to you as our example. Uh, thank you for your word that gives us guidance and wisdom so that we can live a life that emulates Jesus's and that we can grow in our sanctification, become more sensitive to the Holy Spirit, and ultimately glorify you, God. Help me today with my words to be clear, to be concise. I pray that your spirit, more than anything, moves in people's hearts, that people hear what you have for them to hear today, that lives will be changed today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I gave you a little bit of the context of the book. The previous section right before this, Paul's actually talking about facing persecution in this church. And so he leads in from into this section from talking about this persecution. It's important to know that because he starts off with saying, so if. So there's a little bit of background there. He's just been talking about persecution that the church has been facing. And he moves forward to talk about this idea of unity 
uh, is one of the ways to move forward against persecution. And so going back to text, verses 1 through 4, it says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in this section, Paul has two clear interests in this section. One, that the Philippians are united, and then that that unity comes through promoting the interests of others above their own. I mentioned earlier, we live in a time where culture is obsessed with the self. Expressive individualism in all things, whether that's your sexuality, whether that's your preferences in food, everything is about yourself, individual, uh, your rights being preserved. But Paul, who's writing to this church that's under persecution and under cultural pressures, is connecting this idea of unity, this idea of selfless humility, as a way of enduring persecution. And granted, we aren't experiencing the same persecution that the Philippian church was experiencing. They were experiencing extreme governmental persecution, violence. But we also need to keep in mind that we're not locally just a church, not even just nationally, but internationally. We are united with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do have brothers and sisters who are facing extreme persecution in other worlds or in other countries. And so it's important for us to think of this way as a way to not only endure persecution we may experience here locally, but also as a way to encourage our brothers and sisters around the world as they experience much more severe persecution. And so the big key that Paul has out of this idea in this first section is that the way to withstand persecution is to be unified. Uh, a quote from Our Nation's History, I think, kind of sums this up the best. It's been attributed to Benjamin Franklin, although it's questionable if he actually ever said this, but the quote works for the point. So uh, the idea is uh, that they say, Benjamin Franklin says, we must hang together or surely we will hang separately. I think that summarizes it up. I think the contexts are very different. Obviously, we're talking about formation of a nation and church body, but I think the idea there sums it up very well, this idea that for the church globally, locally, to endure persecution, to endure fights against culture, to endure all these things that are against what Scripture teaches us, the key to that is, one, being unified amongst ourselves. If we're too busy fighting amongst ourselves, we'll never be unified enough to actually endure and support each other through persecution. And even more so, we'll probably actually bring even more persecution upon ourselves. I think that's probably the biggest problem we face in America a lot of times is this idea that people outside the church easily can point to the church and say, well, you guys can't even agree on basic things yourselves. You spend so much time fighting amongst yourselves. Why should we take you seriously as any sort of solution to actual unity in the greater context of our culture? And the selfish ambition Paul's talking about is this desire to gain an upper hand through uh, underhanded tactics. And uh, so I kind of mentioned Twitter, Facebook. I see this a lot in this idea of We've kind of transitioned in the church from this idea of like spirited theological debate where maybe we disagree, we're trying to sharpen each other, so we want to win. I, I mean, this is coming from someone, I went to seminary, which I think is Greek for likes to win. Um, so this is something I fought with uh, for sure, and I still do. This idea of like, you want to win, one, because you want to be right, especially when it comes to something about scripture. You want to know that you're doing the right thing, that you're understanding scripture the right way. So there is some positive motivation there, but the way we go about it often is more about glorifying ourselves 
than growing the body or growing ourselves in our own sanctification. We want to be right. That's the win. That's what we're going for. And so we need to fight for unity among our local church, here locally way of grace, but also in a broader context of the global church. And I think that's where you see even a bigger possibility of those rifts. We see these different denominations. We think, see things where there's splits. We take things that maybe should be secondary or tertiary or even farther down the line importance and make them central to the gospel. We make them things that we have to divide upon, that we, things we have to fight on, to the point that we're so quick to call people heretics at this point. And most of the time, that's driven more by us wanting to be right than being uh, biblically faithful. And so we see in the early church this way of unity was actually their response to the Roman Empire. Um, it wasn't an aggressive attack. It wasn't a culture war. Their response to a government and a culture that was actively oppressing them, actively persecuting them, was to be unified amongst each other and servant-hearted to each other and servant-hearted to those outside the community. Their strongest arguments against the accusations of this pagan world was in appealing to their character. They could stand up and say they were free and clear of any sort of guilt when it comes to their character, of who they were. The questions were theological questions then at that point, of, yes, we don't worship the emperor, but we're not doing but but look at the way we live, look at the way we care for each other. That was their great argument against the rest of the world. It wasn't a well thought out five point, you know, simplification of the gospel or anything like that. It was look at the way we love each other. Look at the way we care for the people that you discard. And so this attitude of humility needs to characterize our relationship with each other as believers and as we have been given a great example through Christ's relationship with us. So as we kind of move forward in the text, we see Paul actually moves on to talk about this great example that we have in Jesus. Verses 5 through 8, Jesus' example. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. So this passage has a huge theological implication on the nature of Christ, who he is. I'm not going to get into that today. One, 30 minutes is not enough time. Really, you could preach 10 sermons on this passage alone. Two, I don't want to create a bunch of emails for your elders to have to answer this week if I slip up and say something quite a little unclear there. Um, but I'll try to summarize it as quickly as possible to at least acknowledge it. Um, and here's my very short and very inadequate s- summary of this passage and how it talks to Christ's nature. That Jesus Christ is fully God and through a mysterious miracle became fully man and subjected himself to mistreatment from his own creation to the point of a gruesome execution. This idea that God became man, he was still God, he was still 100% man, he subjected himself to his own creation and died. That's the really short, simple version of it. There's lots and lots of ink that's been spilled about this passage beyond this that we could talk about. But... This morning, what I want to focus on is the idea of the example that Christ gives within the context of what Paul's writing about here, that there is all this deep theological truth with this, but all that's to point to the idea that Christ is an example for us to follow. So Jesus, though he had all the rights and power that comes with being an infinite sovereign God of the universe, he didn't take advantage of this status in order to maintain his own comfort, 
So uh, in the passage where it says, uh, who though he's in the form of God, he did not count equality as a thing with God to be grasped. That's the idea Paul's getting at. It's that he didn't take advantage of the fact he had that power. He didn't have the, he had those rights. He had all those things. He didn't take advantage of that power in the sense of saying, well, I'm God. I don't need to subject myself to this. I'm God. Um, he didn't take advantage of this stash in order to maintain his own comfort, but he willingly humbled himself to become part of his own creation. So this infinite God who is perfect, complete, whole, needing nothing, decided to make this move to humbly serve his creation. It's not a matter of him doing it because he had to do it to fulfill anything within himself. He did it simply out of humility and love for his creation. Jesus had every right to refuse to become human, to live in a world marred by sin through the rebellion of his own image bearers. And he would have been totally justified and completely whole if he hadn't. If Jesus had not come to earth and not died for our sins and left all of us on our own to face the wrath of our sin, he would have been completely justified in doing that as God. But he chose rather not to do that. Instead, he thought more highly of his creation, of his people, of you, of you specifically. He thought highly enough of you than he did of himself, than he did of his own comfort. He cared more about you than he did about his own comfort and his own rights and his own responsibilities. He understood that through that though he would experience personal discomfort and pain, that wouldn't lessen his godness. He wouldn't become less god because he subjected himself to mistreatment and to living among a world marred by sin. In fact, it really only reinforced his deity. It showed how godlike he was because he came to earth, he lived sinless. He actually fulfilled everything within the, the covenant's obligations of the Old Testament. He submitted himself to death and he rose again. So in doing a humble act where he served and took on the role of a slave, it actually reinforced his deity because it proved who he was. It proved that he was able to live a sinless life. It proved that he was sinless, that he was God. That's an important note for us to make. Us having humility doesn't mean lessening our value, our our importance. When we're humble, when we humbly care for others over ourselves, that doesn't make you less of a person. It doesn't make you less valuable. It doesn't have an effect on that. I think sometimes people feel like, well, I can't humble myself because then I'm admitting that maybe I'm not really truly who God's called me to be. It doesn't mean that you're less of who you are. It means that you actually understand who you are and that God has called you to live a life of humility and you actually in some sense, embrace more fully who you really are rather than trying to build your own kingdom on your own pride and your own accomplishments. You actually see who you are through Jesus. And so by recounting Jesus' expression of deity through his obedience and humility, um, Paul is implying that it's not asking too much. It's not too great a sacrifice for us to humbly lay down our very limited in comparison to Jesus' rights our very limited rights for one another so that the gospel might be put on display. That's what Paul wants to see have happen. He wants to see the gospel and the glory of God put on display through our acts of humility. And when you take, take a step back and realize who you are and your limited ability, we're finite. We don't have an infinite knowledge. We don't have all the characteristics of God's. We're, we're, we're reflections of God. We don't have all those same characteristics that for God and Paul through scripture to ask us to humbly worry about someone else a little bit more than ourselves is not a big ask. 
It's not. It's very countercultural to what our culture says right now. Our culture is all about platform building. We even see in the churches platform building and growing and, and doing all these things. I've been a part of things like that in the past that were more focused on growing the brand rather than Jesus and rather than the gospel growing. And it's not asking a lot for us to step back and let Jesus be the one that's put on display because Jesus is the one that's sinless. Jesus is the one that actually provides salvation, not us. And so making that small sacrifice is not a lot, is not a big ask is what Paul's trying to say. And he takes away all of our good arguments by using Jesus. It's like in Sunday school and the answer you say it's Jesus, like, how are you going to fight that? You know, you go, but, and Paul's like, Jesus. But I, crucifixion. But I don't like Jesus. Okay, you move on. And so, with that, the question is then, what's the ultimate goal from unity through humility? What's the point of doing all this? Why, why is Paul calling us to do this? And how can we measure, as a community of leaders, are we following Christ's example? Like, what's, what, how can we figure out, are we doing this right? Are we, are we being humble enough? Because I get the idea of, of being humble is a complicated thing, too. Because if you tell people you're humble, you're not humble. And so there's this, there's this complicated thing of trying to figure out, like, how do we know if we're actually being humble? If someone tells you you're humble, you're like, thanks, I know. All right. <laughs> if you tell yourself you're humble, well, we're really good at lying ourselves and make ourselves feel really good. So all these are, are hard questions. How do we figure out, are we actually doing what Jesus wants us to do in this passage? Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name of that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, therefore, going back to the previous passage, because of Jesus' example, because Jesus chose to do what he did, humbly submit himself to his creation, die on our behalf, because of that, because of his obedience to God, God has exalted him. That we see that Jesus is now still at the right hand of the Father, fully God, ruling and reigning, and coming back. And he's going to rule and reign forever. And that someday every knee is going to bow, whether willing or unwilling, and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. That's the result of Jesus' humble obedience. In that there's other things. Yes, we are given the privilege and the, the opportunity to be part of God's family in doing that. But ultimately... Jesus' life, burial, but life, death, burial, resurrection glorifies God. And in that, God glorifies Jesus in putting him at the right hand of the Father. And so as we humbly love others and think of others before ourselves, our example of love should amplify the gospel and glorify God through the world. It's a really good way to measure. Are, are we humbly living in a way that Paul is describing here? Well, does your life glorify God? Does your church glorify God? Does the church glorify God? Those are good questions. I think we can see maybe the, the big C, the church, at least the ones that are real public and uh, the ones that we see the most often. That may not be actually happening right now, but we do see there's some work that needs to be done there. Praise God for sanctification and forgiveness that, that, that all can repent of that. But the reality is that's how we measure how are we doing. Is God being glorified? Do we see the gospel going forth from our own lives, from the way we live our own lives, the way we care for other people? Do we see it within our local church? Do we see it in the global church? That's the measuring stick. If you don't see those things, that's when you start asking, okay, what am I doing 
that is bringing glory to myself or to our structures rather than to Jesus and the Father. And so as the pastor says, one day all people will acknowledge Jesus as God. Some willingly, others will be compelled. We should be striving to live in such a way that others see the glory of the gospel now and submit to it willingly. That's our goal. We understand God saves. We understand that God is the one that provides salvation. But God uses us and our, the way we li- live to open people's eyes t- to his truth, to come alongside him in the Holy Spirit. So this is an opportunity for us, too. This isn't just a thing where we have to, all right, I've got to submit and be humble and do these things. God's calling us to partner with him, to be used by him to bring other people into salvation, to watch other people submit themselves to Scripture, to Jesus, to experience the life that we experience, to experience the joy that we can experience, that we can only find through Jesus. And so this call to humility is an opportunity. It's not a forced thing. It's something that... I've really had to work on, honestly, for me, is looking at it of like, man, okay, I gotta, I've gotta love people more. I've gotta do these things, like, because that's what God, and realizing that in doing that is where I get opportunities, then where God's gonna op- open doors for me to be the one that gets to share the gospel with people, that I get to see people's lives changed, that I get to see marriages restored, that I get to see families brought back together, that I get to see repentance and broken marriages. Those are all things that I've been privilege to be a part of, not because I'm a great counselor by any means, in any sense of the word. Like, that has nothing to do with me. It's because I just submit myself to what God's asking me to do, and God basically gives me the chance to just see him at work up close. That's a great, amazing opportunity. And it's all he's asking us to do is actually care about other people more than we care about ourselves, the more than we care about being right. And so in this our text today kind of gives us three a threefold message here. So I'm going to kind of go back and, and, and rehash it here. Uh, I know for me, when I go through Scripture, kind of an easy way to kind of organize how when I read Scripture is to think about what does it say about God? What does it say about me? Or what does it teach me? And then what does it say about the world? How does it give me context to how the world is is running today? How do I know more about God in this passage? What's my responsibility? What's my response to this? So I think there's three messages out of this. The one, the one that tells us about God. One, it tells us about God, that Jesus is the infinite, holy God. There is that reality of this. That there is a, this passage does tell us that Jesus is God. He's not a good prophet or, or, or a nice guy or a good teacher. He's all those things, but he's God. He's an infinite, holy God who identifies with weak and powerless because he was unwilling to use his privileges as God for selfish gain. He was unwilling to maintain the comfort and the ease of life that he had by being eternally in communion with the Holy Spirit and the Father. Everything was perfect. If God had never created anything, God in the Trinity would have been fully fulfilled and fully happy. Jesus chooses not to use that right and that responsibility, but instead he expresses his deity through humble service. It's almost like he was so secure in who he knew he was that he was willing to endure all these things because he knew it wouldn't make him less God. Jesus knew anything he could be subjected to here on earth would not make him not God. Um, Colossians talks about that Jesus is the one holding the universe together, maintaining its existence. Jesus was maintaining the existence of the universe as it was mistreating him. 
as his creation was mistreating him. He maintained the existence, held together the atoms of the nails that were piercing his hands, the, the spear that pierced his sides. He maintained the existence of the Roman soldiers that mistreated him and the crowd that cried crucified. He maintained the existence of all these things then because he knew that he was still God. He knew who he was, and so he was able to humbly serve others because he wasn't worried about becoming less than who he was. It's important for us to know who we are in God. It's important for us to know the scriptures and know what God says about us so we can be confident and be able to humbly serve other people. That's how we can give up our need and our right to be correct all the time, to win is when we don't feel like our worth is measured in likes and applause and it's measured in who God says we are. Two, this, this uh, text tells us about us. It calls us to act. It's not just enough to know who you are and know you need to be humble. Paul's asking the Philippians to act, to humbly care about others more than themselves. Just the way God expressed our divinity, we are to express our faith through a humble obedience to his word and service to others. This idea that it's not just enough to know it, but we need to actually humbly serve other people. That, that requires action. That requires picking up the phone sometimes. That requires doing things that sometimes are inconvenient. It means simple things, holding the door for someone. Those are little things that we can do that we can start training those muscles of humility. This idea of not always being right. A great way to kind of start working on your muscles of humility is not always hitting submit on Facebook, on Twitter, not always feeling the need to express every opinion you have, even if it's right. Thinking about, is this something that's going to be edifying? Is it something that's going to uh, encourage other people? Or is it going to make me look right? It's going to make me look smart. Am I trying to look like I'm on the right side, whatever side that is that you want to be on? Paul's saying... We need to care about others more than we care about ourselves. And this is a thing we see a lot throughout his, his letters. I mean, we see him talk about, uh, telling people, though it's not necessarily sinful to have food that was sacrificed to pagan idols, to not do it because it does cause issues for other people. So, in something that is not inherently sinful, Paul is still calling for believers not to do that because he doesn't want them to cause others to stumble. That's humble service. That idea of, if, even if what I'm doing is right, does it help or does it cause other people to stumble? We can do this a lot in our theological debates, a lot of times in our questions of trying to uh, prove we're right and in the course of doing that, just confuse people, make them more confused about, about what Scripture says. And we do it because we're trying to sound smart and intelligent and use big words rather than being clear and concise and humble. Um, and then... The last thing it tells us about is the world. It tells us how the story ends. That's the great part of this, is, section, is verses 9 through 11. We know how the story ends. Everyone will stand before God. Everyone will stand before Jesus. Every knee will bow. We know that we've been called into the family of God. That, that will be a day of celebration for us when we finally are able to all be together, all of us worshiping Jesus face to face. We're going to stand before God and give an account of how we stewarded our lives, though, when we do that. There is a reality that we are going to give an account. And Paul's hope for us is that we would stand blameless. That's why he talks about these last days. He wants us to think about that. We don't want, he doesn't want us to get so wrapped up in the day-to-day thing that we lose sight of the goal. The goal is the last day. That's the most important day, is the last day. He wants us 
to be able to stand before God blameless with a life that's marked by humility. And that humility is given out of a response from the grace that's given to us. That's the major underlying driving factor of this, is that grace has been given to us, and we didn't deserve it. We were, we were given an opportunity to be a part of the family of God and called in the family of God, not because of anything we've done. And so why should we have any other motivation other than to humbly serve others because we've been given such a great gift? And so with that, great, that's all that information. Where do we start? How do we actually do this? What does it look like? I found someone way smarter than me to help us out, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he uh, gives seven principles for us uh, to kind of eradicate selfish ambition within our Christian communities. He starts off, the first one he has is, is great. Hold your tongues. Refuse to speak uncharitably about Christian brothers. That's a huge one. That's a huge one for me. I was super convicted when I found this. I almost was like, eh, I don't want to use this list. Um, refusing to speak uncharitably. That doesn't mean we're not ignoring or hiding. I want to be careful about that too. But when we see sin, we should call it out among our brothers and sisters. But speaking uncharitably is how we try to make ourselves look more holy than someone else. That's where gossip comes in. Slander, those kind of things. We hide that in prayer requests and all these things that sound really holy, but the idea is holding your tongue and refusing to speak uncharitably about a Christian brother. The second thing that uh, Bonhoeffer talks about doing is cultivate the humility that comes from understanding that we, like Paul, are the greatest of sinners and can only live in God's sight by his grace. That's a huge thing we need to remind ourselves of daily is that the only reason that we can even approach the throne of God is through his own grace. It's not through anything we've done. And in fact, everything we've done gives him reason not to have us come before his grace. He's a holy God, and he allows us to be a part of his family, to be part of his kingdom. We need to remind ourselves that, that we have been given a great gift. Remind ourselves who we are. Third, Bonhoeffer says, listen long and patiently so that we will understand our fellow Christians' need. This is something we're really bad at, I think, is listening. Everyone talks all the time, constant talking. Um, even to the point I've noticed, I, I'm a nerd. I listen to a lot of talk radio, both sports and news. And 10 years ago, phone calls, people, listeners calling into the radio station and contributing to the conversation was a really normal thing. That doesn't happen anymore. Something I've noticed thinking about this week. We don't listen. Everyone just talks. Everyone uses whatever avenue they have as a bullhorn, whether it's a talk radio host or, or yourself on, on Instagram and Twitter. We all like to talk a lot. I, I, I mean, I feel called to preach. I like to talk a lot. Um, we don't listen very well. Or if we do listen, we listen in order to respond. We listen in order to, to, to win the argument or to, to give some advice or fix something. God's used marriage. Thank God for me to help learn that. <laughs> um, that doesn't go well. Trying to fix things without actually understanding what's happening with my wife doesn't do me any good. doesn't do anyone any good. Typically, it makes it worse. 
with my six-year-old daughter doesn't do me any good to not understand why she's upset. Now, granted, why she's upset may not be a great reason, but at least I need to understand where we're starting at before I can actually provide any sort of care or comfort. But doing that requires me to humbly acknowledge that they're experiencing something, and I need to understand that before I can actually give any sort of counsel, any sort of wise counsel on that. We need to listen long and patiently. We need to refuse to consider our time and calling so valuable that we cannot be interrupted to help with unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. It's another badge of honor of our culture is being busy. Got a lot going on. Busy, busy, busy. Um, we're so busy we, we can't help people. Um, I mean, no one likes to help anyone move. But at the same time, like no one's... Like, like not being so busy that you can't help people move. You can't help a, a single mother that's a part of your, your church move. Priorities are off there. If you're so busy, and let's be honest, busy for most of us means most of our days spent in front of a screen. We're not as busy as we think. We just like to be busy. But that requires us to slow down. It's the same as that idea of listening long and patiently. It's to slow down, to not look over the shoulder uh, of people. One of the books I'm reading right now, um, a guy by the name of Zach Eswine, it's called Imperfect Pastor. It talks a lot about this. I'm super convicted by it. Sunday mornings, especially for me, is something where I'm running around I'm trying to figure out, you know, computers and this and that, and uh, really felt convicted. I actually read that chapter of the week after I totally blew someone off on a Sunday morning that wanted to talk to me. Um, we need to not think of what we're doing in our lives is so important that we can't possibly be bothered to listen to someone else and provide care and help. I mean, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. Think of others more than yourselves. Does that mean that maybe I have to stay up a little bit later one night to do some work? Or does that mean I get to play a little bit less Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes on my phone? Like, again, Paul's not asking a big sacrifice from us when we look at things in the big picture. Uh, number five here from Bonhoeffer. Bear the burden of, brother, of brothers and sisters in the Lord, both by preserving their freedom and by forgiving their sinful abuse of that freedom. Humble love doesn't include pointing out everyone else's mistakes all the time. Humble love is forgiveness. Again, that's not giving permission and turning a blind eye to things that need to be addressed, but there is a reality that if someone just says something stupid to you, you just need to forgive them and move on. If you see something on Facebook, you don't have to comment on everything. This idea that we have to jump in and correct everyone all the time rather than just forgiving them or maybe privately going alongside them. Because now it's not even enough that we have to prove someone we're right by privately talking to them. We have to go and tell everyone about it in every way we can. Even if we don't mention them by name, everyone knows who we're talking about. We need to bear the burden of our brothers and sisters. We need to come alongside each other. We need to do what we can to preserve other people's freedom, to not bind them to our consciences. We also need to be forgiving of them. Number six, we need to declare God's word to their fellow believers when they need to hear it. I love you guys read scripture in service. I love that. That's huge. And it's something that, it's it sounds so crazy to think about, but 
there's very few churches I've ever been a part of that publicly just read scripture together in service. When you step back and <laughs> think about what you're doing, you're, this is where we get all the instruction from. Why aren't we reading this? So I, I love that. I love that, that you guys do that here at Way of Grace. We need to declare God's word to fellow believers. No one in my church needs my advice. I don't know what I'm doing. Ultimately, I don't. What I can do is go, well, I think Scripture talks about this, and talk with them that way. We need to declare God's word. We need to remind each other who we are. We need to talk about the fact we're image bearers of God. We need to talk about the fact we've been redeemed, that we're part of the family of God, that we can't be ripped out of his hand. We need to quit worrying about defending our own position so much and actually spend time declaring the word of God to other people, not our own words. And then lastly, Bonhoeffer's seventh thing is understand that Christian authority is characterized by service. It doesn't call attention to the person who performs the service. I'm going to be careful here because this isn't my church. (laughs) I'm not a part of it. i got to leave after this. Be wary of Christian leaders who like to talk about themselves a lot. Whether that's local church, big church, be wary of that. Be wary of people that are calling attention to themselves. That's not a characterization of humble service. It's the opposite of that. Jesus talks about that. The first will be made last. The last will be made first. So those are seven things. I know it's a lot. It's not super helpful. I'll quickly review them for you. Hold your tongue. Understand that we are sinners like Paul. Listen long and patiently. Don't be so busy you can't serve. Preserve others' freedom and forgive them. Declare God's word. Understand that humility is the foundation of Christian authority. And so that's my prayer for you guys, for the church, for me, me especially, is that we become known more for living in accordance with Scripture and our character is marked by humble obedience and love for another rather than being known for my eloquence, which I'm not, for being known uh, for my wisdom or my wealth or my social media following. I keep harping on that. I'm a millennial. I'm sorry. Um, but be marked by humble obedience and love for one another so that we might experience the joy that comes in being part of the family of God, to experience a true joy, a true satisfaction in being comfortable in who we are, knowing that we have a family that cares for us, that we all care for each other more than we care for ourselves. And in doing that, ultimately, we do all that so that the world sees that Jesus and his followers are above reproach. And that we see that God is glorified through that. Not just in our words, but in our deeds. Let me pray for you guys.